0: All right. Welcome to this brand new OLLI class, um, this OLLI series called Talmudic Ethics. This is an unbelievable series um, that looks at real-life cases, ethical dilemmas, moral quandaries, and presents a framework—a Jewish framework, but a logical, um, powerful framework for looking at some of the most complicated and complex ethical questions. As you'll see, we'll see today some like. Questions that really test our ethical um, metal, as as it were. Um, but I want to begin with a thank you, to Stephanie, and to Annie, and to everyone at Ollie for uh, putting this together. This is, I know, usually the Ollie at Emory um, series happen um, at Ollie HQ, um, at you know, in, in, the, in the in the offices. This is out of out of the office in a new space. And I'm very grateful for this partnership and for bringing it over here to the, to the synagogue space. And it's, it's wonderful to have you all here. So welcome. Um, okay, so today the topic is my, my brother, myself, saving yourself versus saving others. And what we're gonna do in today's class is look at uh, uh, cases of life and death, and cases in which the question is literally one of life and death, whose life should be saved, and whose life, who lives, and who doesn't. And this will come up in many different scenarios. We're gonna have our first case study is gonna be a real story that happened during the Holocaust. We're gonna look at cases of, um, this will lead into to, to questions about medical ethics and other types of conversations. But as we'll see today, these are real life questions that have come up, that have really large implications, and there is a powerful framework a Talmudic framework for looking at all of this. So just so you know, um, throughout this six part series, here are the topics we're gonna cover. Number one, the sanctity of life. Number two, next week's class is about euthanasia and end of life issues. We're going to deal with in lesson three, abortion and beginning of life issues. We decided to go with all the easy topics, all the the super easy topics. Hey, is Good to see you, welcome. Um, we are going to get into the topic of slander versus free speech, which is certainly something that comes up today. What are the limits of freedom of speech? Um, we're gonna get into the ethics of honesty, and that is the truth. And finally, in our last session, we're going to look at the issue of copyright and fair use, intellectual property, um, copyright law, etc. cetera. All of these issues, are real life issues and will be illuminated by the wisdom of Jewish thought, especially as recorded in the Talmud. Welcome. Um, Okay, so again, today's class is all about sanctity of life and we're gonna begin with a case study. So if you don't mind cracking open your little booklets over there to uh, to page number two where it says the case. I'm gonna read this story and I want you to know this. This story that we're about to read is 100% true. It's a real story this happened during the holocaust um okay the case oh and by the way who how do we know this and who who wrote this as you'll see there the attribution of this of this case study is rabbi tzvi hirsch meisels who wrote this in the Hashem. basically he was a rabbi who was in auschwitz in the concentration camp and he wrote, and he survived, and he wrote a book about all of the questions, ethical questions that he was asked, that he had to very difficult questions, as you'll see this one, um, that he was asked and the answers that he gave. Here we go, here's the case. A father of a 15-year-old boy came to me and asked the following question. The SS had just rounded up 1,400 boys between the ages of 14 and 18 to be killed on the following day, including his son. And I'm going to explain exactly what, what, what this scenario here in a second. The father, however, managed to convince one of the guards to release his son in exchange for a large bribe. He wanted to know whether he was permitted to save his son, since as a result, the officer would round up another child in order to maintain the quota. Let me explain the, the, the situation. I believe this was 1943 or 1944. It was the day before Rosh Hashanah, which you may know as the Jewish... New Year, right? Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. Um, it was the day before Rosh Hashanah, the SS comes in and they round up, as you saw here, they rounded up 1,400 teenage Jewish boys and they put them in a, in a, in a, in a space to kind of hold and they were, they were planning, not planning, their, their intention was the next day to come and murder all these 1,400 boys. Now, they put Jewish guards, Jewish guards to watch. This is how they operated. There were Jewish guards that the Germans, that the SS had in place to do a lot of the, to do a lot of the, 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 the hands-on work. They were in an impossible situation. If they didn't listen, they would be shot immediately. And often they were, they were put in, in, in. We can't imagine the position that they were, the Jewish um, uh, uh, guards were, were in. Anyway, the Jewish guards were told, here are 1,400 boys that we've selected. Make sure there are 1,400 tomorrow when we come back. And the Germans, of course, were very calculated with the numbers. It's not not that they wouldn't notice if there were 1,399. So here was a father of one of these teenage boys that had been selected. Now, the Germans didn't necessarily select them by name, to which they would look at the roster and necessarily match up by name, but they knew 1,400 is 1,400. So this father comes to the rabbi, Rabbi Meisels, who's in Auschwitz as well. And he says to the rabbi, I have the ability to bribe one of the Jewish guards to get my son out. But if I do that, they have to hit the quota of 1,400. So what are the guards going to do? They're going to grab someone else, another kid who's currently not in danger. Are you with me on this? Am I legally, ethically, morally, etc., allowed to save my son, knowing that by doing so, I am essentially putting, right, uh, uh, endangering the life of another, of another uh, young, young, young boy? That was the question. So I'm going to turn to you. Imagine, I know it's impossible to imagine, but imagine this question comes to you. Imagine you're the rabbi. You're Rabbi Meisels. This father comes to you. You don't have a lot of time over here. Right? It's one day. It's one day. 24 hours, if not less. What do you say? Who votes yes? I'm not trying to reduce this to a vote, but who says yes, you can save your son, and what happens, happens? Yes, we have some yeses. Who says no? You have some nose, okay? Huh? And you're like, it's impossible. Yeah, I would say, and who's not sure, right? All the hands, I think, would go up even more strongly. Um, by the way, th- you know, there's a few questions for discussion here. I'll mention number three. What does the very fact that the question was asked tell you about the father or the boy? The very fact that the father asked the question to a rabbi, what does that tell you about the father? He loves his son, but also he's sensitive to making sure to do the right thing. He can also afford the bribe. He can also, yeah. May not. Yeah. I wonder if he could afford the bribe. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly he could. Maybe he had, a, he had a connection with one of the guards and he had the, the in to be able to bribe him. Certainly he had to have the means as well. Um, but this is the question, and it, and it really, if we take a step back, what we see is an individual, and this is obviously one case, one real case, of an individual who doesn't just think about himself and his son, he's also thinking about the morality of it in, under the most inhumane circumstances. I mean, we know part of what the, what, the, what the Germans, what the Nazis were trying to do is put people in inhumane circumstances and have them act in inhumane fashion. And here we see one example, not, you know, we, we don't know the other stories that, we, that weren't reported, but here is one story that is reported in which we have a father who is acting in a way of wanting, or is wanting to do the right thing, not just what's most beneficial to himself or his son? Okay, so you know, I, I when I opened up uh, the class today, which is really opening up the course, and I said to you, we're going to be looking at really difficult moral and ethical dilemmas and trying to get a framework from Talmudic thought, Jewish thought, as to how to approach it, and then walk away, hopefully with something of value for ourselves in our own lives. Um, you know, I, without doing the case study, you might have wondered like, what type of ethical dilemmas are we talking about? Here's a situation. Here's a real case study. This really happened. We're only gonna get to the answer at the end of the lesson. So, and it's not gonna help if you flip through it, because trust me, it's not gonna help if you flip through to the, to the end. Um, what we're doing throughout this series, and we're, gonna, we're seeing this in, in, in sharp relief today, is positioning, you're presenting a question that's a really good question, where we can really be torn on the issue. On the one hand, of course you should save yourself. On the other hand, you're putting another life at risk and, and really torn on that, and it, 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 you know, a, a question that really tears us apart, and hopefully try to find some framework, sensible framework to, uh, to approach this. So in order to do this, the first thing we're going to do is present the contrast. Present the contrast um, of... We're getting closer. Oh, that works. Yeah, there's an echo. Okay. Maybe we can also close that. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, okay, so let's let's do this. Let's present a distinction, a major distinction between um, the a, a Jewish framework of looking at things uh, uh, versus, uh, we'll call it like a U.S., United States, or American way of looking at things, especially vis-a-vis the value of life. So we're going to segue on to page three, which is learning exercise um, number two which we in which we're going to compare and contrast two different systems of thought but before we jump into these texts I want to present the following um, in America in the United States we talk a lot about rights oh, yes. it's very much a rights-based system the right to do this the right for that the right for the other it's a rights-based system. Rights-driven system. In Judaism, it's not so much of a rights-based system. It's an obligation or responsibility-based system. So to put this very uh, you know, very simply, in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't say you have the right to honor your parents. <laughs> what does it say? You have an obligation to honor your parents. You have a responsibility to honor your parents. So Judaism, Torah, the Ten Commandments, etc., doesn't speak so much in terms of Rights, but rather in terms of responsibilities. This is a general um, distinction between a Jewish legal approach and a secular or US legal approach. Rights versus responsibilities. This has major ramifications in various areas of life um, and law. So for example, for example, when it comes to the right to... Uh, so actually, so before we we break into... Hey, good to see you. Welcome, welcome. Before we break into the uh, uh, some, some distinctions and how this plays out, let's take a look at where we see this um, to be true. Page three, learning exercise number two. The first quote is from the Declaration of Independence. And let's jump right in. I'm going to read this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Okay, and that's obviously an excerpt from the Dele- Declaration of Independence. Let's, again, let's uh There you go, Jeff. Thank you, Thomas. Pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> all right, so this excerpt from the Declaration of Independence speaks to this idea of rights, right? People have rights, and of course the question is who do they mean when they said all men are created equal, but that's for another class, for another conversation. <clears throat> but the idea that people have rights and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is enshrined in our um, our governmental documents—that's like a, a, a Declaration of Independence. These, these are the core tenets. Um, whereas, from a Jewish perspective, if you look at the next quote from the Talmud, which is the great repository of Jewish thought, the Talmud says something else. I was created to serve my master. You know what that means? It's not about rights. It's about responsibilities. I have an obligation. I have a responsibility, and there are things that I must do. So here's one area in which, in which where this plays out in very. Uh, Star Contrast, the obligation to protect life. So in US law, if somebody's life is at risk and you are observing that risk, in other words, you're aware of the risk to someone else's life, you are not under obligation (coughs) to step in and help. There is no law that says that you have to step in and save a life, doesn't say that. In fact, there was a story and I've mentioned this in some of you who've taken classes. We've talked about this in other contexts before. There was a story that happened a few years ago um, in Florida where somebody was in their car and it was, they were drowning. And there's these teenagers or, I don't know, young adults that are filming this on their phones. And you see the video and they're laughing and they're whatever and, and not calling 911, not doing anything. And you know what? They can't be prosecuted. They didn't do it. They're observing it. On the contrary, in the United States, you have to have a special law that says if you do get involved, that you should be protected from liability if it doesn't go the way that you intended to help. Right? Yeah. We call that the, uh, the Good Samaritan laws. The Good Samaritan laws are basically protecting the one who does want to help, but you don't have to. The famous Kitty Genovese story in New York City. Yeah. No, no, could be. I, I'm not I may not be familiar with it. Yeah. Where? in in New York. In New York. Yes. There was a guy who was mentally Oh, oh, yes, 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 and right and the guy, yes, and of they, course. Right. So that's yeah, and and there are, there are obviously nuances in these in these cases, but the general idea in the United States is that as long as I am not in, I, as long as I am not infringing on your right to life, I have no culpability. So if I didn't put you in that danger, if I am not endangering your life, you can't come after me. But do I have an obligation to step in? No. You're being prosecuted in New York City. This- no, that's when he did step No, I understand that case. But I'm saying, but, but let's, let's talk about the, the basic obligation. If you see something, if you see someone's life at risk, do you have an obligation to step in in U.S. law? By and large, no, unless you're a doctor. If you're a doctor, then maybe in under certain circumstances, in certain pro- relation, professional relationships, if you see something with a therapist, and you have and you and someone tells you homicidal thoughts, you have to report it, you have to get involved. But by and large, the average citizen does not have to step in, even when they know that someone's life is at risk or someone's in danger. There's no obligation in Jewish law, in Talmudic law. There's an absolute. There's absolutely <laughs> an obligation. In fact, if you take a look. Turn to page number four in your handout. Yes. Before well, we move on, you said something that kind of brought me back to the first exercise when you said uh, reminded us that in the Ten Commandments it says honor your father and mother, and how does that apply to the father and the son? Good, good. Mm-hmm. What, let's we'll, we'll circle back to that, but good. Keep that in mind. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Now let's look at text 1 AM page 4. Okay, here is a verse from the book of Leviticus in Hebrews known as Vayikra. Here is a verse that says the following, "Do not stand idly by the blood of your fellow." What does that mean? That means do not stand by while someone else's life is at risk. So again, in contrast to US law that says that you can stand by if someone else's someone else is dying, as long as you're not doing it, you have no culpability, you have no obligation, you have no responsibility. I mean, you might want to be a nice person, but you don't have an obligation. Whereas by U.S. law, there's no obligation. In Jewish law, in Talmudic law, in biblical law, absolutely, it says, do not stand idly by the blood of your fellow. It's an obligation. Because again, remember this. In the U.S., the system is driven by rights. Right, As long as I am not infringing on your rights, then don't look at me. Whereas in Jewish law, the, it, it's a system driven by obligation and responsibility. And the obligation and responsibility is to preserve and protect life. So even if I'm not the cause of the danger, I have an obligation to preserve life wherever it is, which means even for the stranger. Does that make sense? Yes, the distinction? Yeah. yeah what, what if someone You see someone drowning, and you know that you don't have the physical ability. Excellent question. Excellent question. So what if someone's at risk, but you or me getting involved might put us at risk? Good. Good. Hold on. That's that's a step. uh, uh, We're going to get there in a moment. We're going to go through a bunch of different scenarios. Let's first take a look at text 1B. This is how the Talmud explains uh, text 1A, the, the biblical verse. Okay, text 1b on page 4. How do we know, says the Talmud, that if someone sees his friend drowning in the river, the case that you mentioned, or being dragged by a wild animal, or being attacked by gangsters, that one is obligated to save him? Because it says, do not stand idly by the blood of your fellow. Um, Then the Talmud, as the Talmud does, it gets into some back and forth and some analytics. But don't we learn this from another place in the Torah and the Bible? As we have learned, how do we know that one has an obligation to restore another's life, saving him in case of danger? Because it says in a different verse in Deuteronomy, and you shall surely return his lost property. It already mentions earlier in the text that one is required to guard lost property which one finds until the owner of the lost property is identified. The repetition of the obligation to return that which is someone else's alludes to the obligation to restore one's life. So basically the Talmud is asking, it seems like we have two different verses in the Bible that talk about the same obligation, which is to help uh, step in and save someone else's life. So the Talmud answers, from the juxtaposition... To the obligation to lost property alone, it would seem that one must only save another's life with one's own body, efforts, but there's no requirement to spend money to save another's life. I.e., just as one is not required to spend one's money to save someone else's property. That is why we need the verse, do not stand idly by the blood of your fellow, to teach that one is required to spend his own financial resources to save a life. By the way, if you ever want to know what the Talmud sounds like when you study it, right there. But I'll, I'll make it, we'll summarize it and make it very simple. The Talmud basically says that from text 1a, the original verse that we read from Leviticus, we learn the following. Not only are every one of us, each one of us required, obligated, responsible to be there for another to save their life if they're in mortal danger, God forbid, but moreover, even to the point of shelling out cash, spending our own money in order to save a life. That's how far the obligation goes. It's not just if if I'm not doing anything else, I'll step in and try to help them but even to the point of resources, spending our own resources to save a life at risk. That's how far the obligation goes. Does that make sense? So again, the contrast here is, whereas in the U.S. system of law, which is a rights-based system, if I can reasonably say I am not infringing on your right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, I am not putting you in danger. You happen to be, you, you know, uh, um, uh, what's like an anonymous name here? Um, give me an anonymous name, Joe, uh, Joe Schmo, Whatever, if, he, if you, Mr. Anonymous, are drowning, and I'm not doing it, I'm not, infri- I, I didn't, I'm not dunking you under the water, so I am not infringing on your right to life. So in the US system, I'm in the clear, right? Someone's in harm's way, I didn't do it, I'm off the hook. In the Jewish system, I have a responsibility an obligation to get involved, to spend my own resources, et cetera, to save a life. Now the question is, what, to what extent does this, you know, how far does this go? Um, how far does this go? What are the exceptions to the rule, et cetera, which we'll, we're gonna start teasing out now. But before we tease out exceptions to the rule, I wanna present another, uh, another point, and that is, just as I have an obligation, to save someone else's life, I also, save and protect someone else's life, <coughs> I also have an obligation to save my own life, right? To save and protect my own life. Um, let's take a look at text number two on page six. This is a Jewish legal text, and it says the following. It quotes another verse from the Bible. It says, however, your blood, which, text two on page six, however, your blood, which belongs to your souls that will demand, This teaches us that if a man dies by his own neglect, for instance, if he engages in quarrels, which eventually lead to his own fatality, he will be accountable to God for causing his own death. Or if someone walks in a place of danger, such as walking on a frozen lake in the winter and subsequently drowns, or if someone engages in a provocation with a killer, about all these, it says, your blood, which belongs to your souls, I will demand, which basically is a maybe complicated way of saying the following, we are obligated not just to protect someone else's life but to protect our own life in other words not to engage in excessively we'll have to figure out how that's measured risky behavior right don't start a provocation with with a dangerous person don't walk on a frozen lake in the winter okay i mean it depends how thick it is and where you are and whatever obviously right levels of risk Right? Can you do bungee jumping? Probably. Cordless bungee jumping? No. Do not. That's not a thing. Yeah. I always talk. If you have a room full of people, I mean, a gunman comes in. Yeah. And says, you have a choice. You can either kill yourself or all the other people I will kill. We're obligated to preserve our own lives. And I've always thought that was non like, oh, that. Not we're going to look, so that's, a, that's an interesting case. So we're, this is going to come up in today's conversation about how we balance, because that's the next, the, the implication of this is not only do I, do, must I preserve, save, protect someone else's life, but I also do the same for myself, which leads to the question, well, what happens if it's me versus you? If only one of us can live, then whose life comes first? That's what we're going to get to, and that obviously ties into our original case. <laughs> so here we go. This literally leads us to text number three. Um, text number three says the following. By the way, just to, just not to run too quickly from text number two about not not engaging in risky behavior. You know, this has compelling. I'm not. I'm not giving any any answers or or or, or you know um, certain uh, perspective on this. But it, ra- it certainly raises the question when you think about football today. Right. We know about CTE, we know about like, you know, the brain injuries that are occurring, boxing, right? Is it kosher, not kosher? I don't know, the question is, what's the threshold of risk, of certain risk? I think that certainly, certainly in cases where there's certain risk, certain mortal risk, we would say that that's not okay to do. But in, question, in cases where it's maybe lessening the quality of life or shortening the, 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 the number the, the years of life, Maybe uh, maybe there's a little, little bit more wiggle room, but it's certainly something that we think about, at least from a Jewish perspective, about uh, putting ourselves in literal harm's way and when that is allowed and when maybe that, that should not be done. Okay, now let's move on to uh, text number three. Text number three is dealing with a situation where my two obligations are up against each other. What are my two obligations? Remember, we said that we have an overarching obligation to protect and preserve life, both in someone else and both within ourselves. Well, what happens if those two responsibilities collide? Right. And by the way, we do this all the time. We have in life, we go through life and we have competing responsibilities, a responsibility to work, to family, to, you know, to our, to our spirituality. We have all these obligations, responsibilities, and we figure out a way how to juggle them. The question is, well, what happens when the juggling of responsibilities is literally a matter of life and death? So we have, from a Jewish perspective, it's not a right to life, but an obligation to life, to help someone, to help ourselves. What happens if only one can, uh, uh, can, can actually work out? You'll see a scenario from the Talmud, um, in text number three. By the way, I know I'm mentioning the word Talmud. It's even in the, the name of the, of the course, Talmudic Ethics. I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning. The Talmud is a work of Jewish law, ethics, and morals written about 1,500 years ago. Um, it is, do we have a copy here? Yeah, there's a copy here on the back shelf. Right there. Third row down right shelf. That's an English version of the Talmud. Yeah, right there, good. And also that middle shelf in the second, uh, that also in the back, there's a few volumes of Talmud. Also in the other room, there's uh, large volumes of the Talmud. The Talmud has uh, 60 plus tractates, each one containing hundreds of pages. It is an incredibly elaborate work um, of Jewish law and and ethics. Okay, that's about the Talmud. Now let's jump in to a scenario that the Talmud uh, raises. A real question of life and death. Text number three. Page seven, two people are walking along the way and one of them holds a flask of water in his hand. By the way, they're walking along the way. Let's just create a scenario here. Let's say they're in the desert. There's no water. They've been traveling for days and there's no water on the horizon either. So here's the deal. Only one of them still has the water. Why the other one had water but poured it on their head while taking a selfie for Instagram. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I don't know if that's a scenario. That's my scenario. So, the, the, what, so one guy has no water. The other guy has water, okay? Now, if both of them drink, they will both die. This is the scenario that we're being given here, right? This is literally the scenario, which means, let's say this is, this is great. I got a collapsed bottle of water. This is the only water left. It's me and a buddy. He doesn't have water. This one is mine. If we we split it, I drink, he drinks, we're both not going to make it to the next, wherever water is next. But if one of them drinks back inside, he will reach the safety of civilization. So now what do you do? (laughs) Who drinks the water? Do you share the water? Do you drink the water? Do you give it to the other guy? So here we go. Um, as is often in the Talmud, there is a Talmudic dispute between the rabbis. Ben Petorah expounded. This is what this rabbi called Ben Petorah. This is what he said. It is better that both of them should drink and die so that neither of them will see the death of his fellow. How romantic, right? We'll, they'll split it, they'll split the water, and they'll both die, Romeo and Juliet, whatever. Like, right? They'll both die, and that's it. Okay, until Rabbi Akiva, the great rabbi, came and taught that your brother may live with you. The Bible tells us to make sure that your brother, right, your fellow, lives with you, which means with is secondary. If I say, I'm going to the movies, do you want to come with me? That means I'm primarily going and you're the plus one. So when the Torah says, when the Bible says, make sure that your brother lives with you, that means that there's a primary and a secondary. That's how he un- interprets it. So your life, says Rabbi Kiva, takes precedence over any other life. Rabbi Kiva interprets with you as meaning secondary to you. As I said, the bracket is what I said, as far as the explanation. So... And, and what if the person... Oh, hold on, hold on. Hold, okay, hold on. Before we get, no, it's a good question. It's a good question. But before we get to the, to, the, to the question, let's understand what's happening here. So again, I'm traveling with a fellow. We're friends, we're buddies. We're in the desert. It's, it's brutally hot. He doesn't have water. I have water. So one rabbi says, split it. And that's it. You'll last as long as you last, but you'll split it equally. And that's it. Rabbi Kiva says, split it. Why split it? It's your water. Drink. Oh, you have an obligation. Right? We said there's an obligation to preserve life, protect life. Yeah, but that's only after you protect yours. That's a secondary obligation. In other words, yes, until now we've established in Jewish law, and Talmudic law, there's an obligation to protect and preserve life. Sure, as a secondary obligation to your own life. So when you rank life obligations, yours comes first, the others come second, that's the way it is. So it's you, I guess probably your immediate family, and then everyone else. So now, does that mean that if someone else is in danger, you shouldn't step in? Of course you should step in. But, if it's your water, and there's no other water, and and sharing it means that you're gonna die, you don't have to go that far to preserve someone else's life. Does that make sense? (sighs) Yeah, which is a very good point. Which leads, which leads to the next point. Well, the Hold that thought, yeah. What if the other person shared their remaining water with you several hours ago? <sighs> wow. <laughs> no, 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 it's a good, I'm saying wow because it's a good question. That's a good wow, not a bad wow. It's a good wow, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. Yeah. I don't know. How uh, do you say thank you very much? No baxis. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. What do you say? But it's fascinating because Ben Petora says you share it. You have an equal obligation to yourself and the others. Split the water 50-50. Rabbi Akiva, and by the way, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned this. The the, the legal, the final ruling in Halach and Jewish law is like Rabbi Akiva. That you it's your it's your water. By the way, this doesn't mean one second. Hold on, let me, let, me, let me interrupt myself. Let me ask you another scenario. What if it's his water? Can I steal his water? But my obligation comes right to my life comes first. Can I steal his water? No, I can't steal his water. But it means whoever has the water has first dibs on, on, on that. It's their water, it's their life, they're allowed to drink it. We're going to get to a lot of, we're just getting warmed up here. We're going to get to a lot of scenarios. Now, but you mentioned the idea of equal danger, which is a great point. What if the danger is not equal? What if someone else's life is at risk? Whereas for me, it's only a matter of comfort. So then obviously we go by the greater need before the self. Where do we see this law in Jewish law? Take a look at text number four, page eight. Please turn the page to uh, text four and page eight and here we get into water rights which by the way is a very big topic today it's it's wild that 1, 15 1600 years ago I mean and the talmud was dealing with cases that came up a few hundred years before it was written and, and published so we're talking about like something almost 2,000 years old is dealing with a legal system almost 2,000 years old is dealing with questions of water rights who has the right to water I mean this is these are big questions in California and other places. These are big, even in Georgia, right? Yeah. These are big questions. Here we go. When a stream that originates in one town flows through another, okay, so it starts here and goes there, point A, point B, and does not provide enough drinking water for both towns. Uh-oh. So who gets the water? The water rights belong to the inhabitants of the first town. You go by the upstream. Upstream whoever's upstream gets the water. Okay, let's continue. The same applies to water that both need for their livestock or for washing their clothes. Whether for survival, as long as the needs are equal, you go by the first town. If, however, the second town needs drinking water for its citizens, while the first town only needs the water for washing clothes, then the needs of the second town prevail. If your lawn is at risk of not being so bright green, if you don't use that water, but meanwhile someone else doesn't actually have water to live, then you can't claim the water. So what do we learn from here? Your life comes first. However, however, if for you it's not life and death, it's just a matter of comfort, whereas for them it is life and death, then obviously... That takes precedence over you. Does that make sense? Okay, let's rewind for a second. Only rewinding just to get clarity before we ta- before we continue. There's like this is this class today. I probably should have mentioned this. Is one step built on another? We're creating a, like a like a I don't know like a stairway. I don't know where we're going, but whatever. We're, I know where we're going, but not to heaven. We're creating a stairway to get to the to get to the big the the big uh, conclusion. So again, we started out by talking about different systems, different conceptions of systems of law and governance and, and really the way people live. U.S. is built on a system of rights. I have a right to do this, a right to right to free speech, right to bear arms, right to this, right to that, right to vote, fine, rights system. That's the U.S. system, you'll hear rights all day. In Judaism, you don't hear right. no one talks about rights. A mitzvah, you an obligation, right? This is what you, obligation, there's responsibility. Vis-a-vis life in the U.S. system, people have a right to live, and you can't infringe on their right to live. But if you're not the one infringing, then you have no responsibility to help them. Whereas in the Jewish system, you have a responsibility to help preserve their life. At the same time, we said you have the responsibility to preserve your life. What happens when, I'm just going over what we said so far, what happens when it's, it's only one can live? There's only one bottle of water. It's your bottle, but they're also going to die. So if they don't drink, so who, who gets the water? So we said that the final conclusion is like Rabbi Akiva that says your life comes first. And we, we, um, we gave a disclaimer and we said, but that's only if it's life versus life, not if it's life versus comfort. If you need water, for washing your clothes and they need water to live, obviously they get the water before you because it's life and death versus, versus a different need, a secondary need. Make sense? Now, let's get to the question that you asked before, which is what about entering danger to save the other one? How far does the obligation to save someone else's life go? What if they're drowning and, and we said before that, oh, if someone's drowning you, then you should step in. Because you can't stand by the, the blood of your fellow. You have, to, you have to get involved. Well, what if getting involved is putting my own life at risk? Forget about my financial resources. We already learned before that you, you have to shell out cash to, to save someone else's life. But what if it's going to put my life at risk? So let's take a look at the next text. We're skipping text five. Let's look at text number six, page number 10. Here we go. Again, another story from the Talmud. Text six. Rabbi Isi, that was his name. Rabbi Isi was caught, was caught by a group of robbers. These were not just robbers. These were violent robbers. Rabbi Yonatan said, upon hearing the news about Rabbi Isi, let us prepare some, some shrouds for Rabbi Isi. Wow, he was very, very dark and foreboding. He basically said, this guy's a goner. Those robbers, when they kidnap someone, right? Remember back in the day with ISIS and whatever, maybe they're still doing that beheadings, it was like once somebody, once somebody was, was captured, it's gone. So that's what Rabbi Yonatan said. Resh Lakish said, either I will be killed by them or they will be killed by me. I'm going to save him from their hands. Resh Luchish was like the ancient Rambo. He was going in, that's it. He's like, I'm going in and either I wipe them out or they kill me, but I'm not sitting by and letting this, this rabbi uh, be killed. Resh Lakish met with them and succeeded in negotiating Rabbi Issi's release. Turns out he negotiated. He was able to figure out a way how to get them, how to get him out, and he got him out. He got his, he got his release. So we have from this story, what, what's the implication from this story? We had two approaches. One rabbi said, someone else's life is at risk, so we should save them, right? Yeah, but they're violent robbers, violent individuals. So one rabbi says, prepare the funeral. I'm not going in. I'm, right? We're not going in. The other rabbi said, let's do it, let's go in. So what is, what is the legal uh, conclusion? So most opinions, most um, Jewish legal authorities side with the first opinion of Rabbi Yonatan, where one is not obligated to enter into a dangerous situation to save another's life. So like we said before, I, I do need to spend money, but to actually put myself... In physical mortal risk to save another's life, I do not need to do. somehow that just seems uh, really lame. You know, like, uh, well, he, he, like hopeless and, yes. and, and, and like a futility that you that you give up before you even think that there's a solution. Right. I'm I'm with you. And it sounds a little callous. Let's prepare some burial shrouds. It sounds a little a little callous and a little insensitive. But I think when we, just, when we take a step back and we look at it, what were these two positions? So one rabbi was saying, it's dangerous. We have no obligation to step in. I mean, it's unfortunate that he was captured by the robbers, but we don't have to put our own life at risk. The other rabbi said, let's go, let's do this. And, but most authorities do not side with the second rabbi, even though he did it and he was successful, but it doesn't become an obligation. Remember, Judaism doesn't speak in terms of ideals, but rather obligations. Is there an obligation? So to your, you asked this question before, Cookie, the question is like this. Somebody is, God forbid, drowning in a riptide. God forbid. Someone's going under. And let's say you can, you'd say we can swim, but it's a riptide. That's a dangerous scenario. Are you, bottom line, bottom line, not what your instinct does in the moment. If you're sitting back and and asking the question, what should one do from a Jewish perspective, from a Talmudic, legal, ethical, moral perspective, should one jump in or not to try to save that life? Based on text six and based on the way most rabbis understand this, you would not be obligated to jump in. It might be good, it it might be like, you might be a hero if you did, but are you obligated to put your own life at risk to save another? To save another, you we said there's an obligation to save another's life, yes. With even if financially, even if it costs you, yes. But even to put your own life at risk? Not necessarily. If you do, you're a hero. Like Ray Shlakish was a hero, he did it. But do you have to? Are you obligated by law to do that? That we wouldn't say. By the way, this has major ramifications regarding organ donation. Donating a kidney. I can just hear my relatives saying, the idiot went out late at night, and he should have known better. Right, so why am I gonna get, yeah, right. So that would be like the argument that we're saying, which is, I mean, even if we're not blaming the victim, right, even if it's a situation of an accident, the bottom line is, do I need to get involved if it's going to put myself at more risk? And then the question is, well, what, how big is that risk? And who assesses that risk? But again, if you think about it in the context, and I don't want to jump to a different topic because today is not necessarily about this directly, um, but if you think about it in the context of organ donation, donating a kidney, right? It's going to save someone else's life, okay? And I can live with one kidney. Is it putting myself at risk? I mean, it might be in certain situations, certain medical conditions, certain medical histories and scenarios. It might put one at risk to donate um, a kidney. I don't know if we're going to get to it in this course, but there's another case study that I once, uh, that I once came across. Not a case study, a real, a real life story. There's was a guy in, in prison. Um, I don't know if he was on death row or not. It was like, like definitely, at least life in prison was the sentence that he was serving. And he was estranged from his daughter. His daughter had um, severe medical uh, uh, challenges, including um, she, had one, she had had a kidney transplant and it failed. There was one more shot. Oh, I'm sorry, he had donated his kidney to his daughter and it worked for a while and then it failed. And she needed another kidney. And so he said that he's willing to donate his second kidney. Now, you know you can't really, <laughs> you, need to, you need at least one kidney. But he said, no, he'll be on dialysis or whatever it is. He'll be you know, plugged into machines or whatever it is to help. I'm not a doctor, but to help that, to help that go. And, uh, but he wants to save his daughter's life. And so the ethical board of the prison and the hospital, they were dealing with this question. Ultimately... You see Jeff is shaking his head. Ultimately, they did not consent to this. Doctor can't do it. Doctor can't do it. It's against the ethics of medicine. medicine. Nothing with a patient that has a medical thing. Yeah. The doctors said, we're not going to do it. And so you have have a system when it comes to medicine. You have a system of ethics in place. And this is not that much different. In Judaism, there's a system of ethics. What are the ethics? If someone says, I am willing to put my life at risk, I'm going to jump into the riptide to try to save this fellow who's drowning. This is what I want to do. Is it ethical to do so? And the, the final conclusion is, or at least, again, based on text 6, according to most opinions, is that, that that's not what we do. Yeah? Going back to the water thing, yeah. Town 1 and Town 2. What would happen if Town 1 decided they wanted to the fund not just live for water Dam their, within their own perimeter of town, dam the water, the river, yeah. even so they have a lake? Right. And water <laughs> <laughs> that would seem that's a problem. Yeah. You know, but they have the right because it's within their quote unquote land. And meanwhile, the town downriver would be destroyed. Yeah, according to according to Jewish law, that wouldn't be kosher. You could not keep the water for your luxury, for your you know um, entertainment at the be- at the cost of someone else's survival. That's that's clear. That's clear from the Talmudic story. Yeah. I just I I'm, I'm glad you went back to another one because I never got your reply about the father in the first the Oh, we're not back there yet. Hold on, hold on. We have so we have some more. We're gonna get there. Story. Trust me. I did not forget. We're we're definitely gonna circle back. Okay. The That's the big conclusion. <laughs> okay. And the second thing rights versus I, I yeah. think it's very interesting. Yeah. It was a situation where a father had two children. And one of the children needed a kidney and the other, the only match was the brother, but they were both children. Mm-hmm. And he went all the way up to the up from New York, whatever the court was in New York, demanding that the child the, the, uh, the other child get his be. kidney. Or, I I breathed a sigh of relief. Because the court said no, you cannot Force. say that, yeah. and it it yeah, it, it speaks to this, to these questions today. 100. What is to what extent do we obligate ourselves or someone else or a parent obligating a minor to save the life of another minor? All right. This is all. It's a very right. This all ties into this conversation. But let's, we're not done yet. We I still we still have more sources. We're still presenting all the facts, and then we're going to tie it up. We're still working on it. Working on it. <laughs> thousands of years later? No, I'm kidding. It's not going to take thousands of years. About ten minutes. We'll be we'll be we'll tie everything up in a in a in a with a with a bow. Text number seven. All of everything that we said until now makes text seven complicated. Let's look at text seven again from the Talmud. The course is called Talmudic Ethics. Here we go. The Talmud says the following in text seven this is a story. A certain individual came before Rava. he was a great rabbi at the time, and said to him, the governor of my town said to me, go kill so-and-so, and and if you do not kill him, I will kill you. (laughs) What shall I do? Again, person A, so there's a rabbi. This will be the rabbi. I'll be the rabbi. Person A comes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, This governor said to me that if I don't kill person B, he's going to kill me. Can I kill person B? Rabbi said to him, let him kill you. Let the governor kill you and do not kill anyone. For what makes you assume that your blood is redder than that of your victim? Perhaps the blood of that man whom they want you to kill is redder than yours. Who says your blood is redder than them? Now I want to ask you the question. When this man comes to the rabbi, whose name was Rava, and he said, "It's my life versus the other guy's life. What does this rabbi say? Whose life comes first? Didn't we say before about the water that you drink the water? What's going on here? How, how did these two rulings of the Talmud and we need to reconcile them. How, do they, how can we reconcile them? On the one hand, we said that if you have one flask of water, drink it, and the other one dies. It is what it is. Here in this case, we're saying you cannot take the life of the other guy to save your own. I thought you could. I thought your life comes first. Here he says, what makes your blood redder than his? Maybe his is redder than yours. Which one is it? You understand my question? What's the answer? What's the difference in the cases? What else? Good. There's active versus passive. But what else is the what, what else is the core difference? Here's the core difference. Where's the threat in the case of the travels in the desert? Where's the threat coming from? Where's it coming from? Yeah, the di- guy who's dying of thirst. Where's that threat coming from? Global warm. <laughs> Good. Right. It's coming from an outside source. It's coming from, I don't know, heat. Nature. Desert. Nature. The guy, who's, the guy who has the water and is drinking his water, is he harming that guy? It's not even passive versus um, active versus passive or direct or indirect. It's more of like, I'm not putting, I'm not putting this guy at risk. This guy's at risk because he's in a desert, as opposed to the scenario that we just read in Tech 7. right? Governor comes to this guy and says, if you, if you have to kill that guy or else I'm going to kill you. Is that guy at risk right now? Who's putting that, who's putting person B at risk? Person A. He, so the guy, person A is asking the rabbi, can I put that guy, Can I take that guy's life to save my own? No, you can't be the source of harm to someone else. In a situation, you with me on this? In a situation where the question about who gets saved, you can, you can prioritize saving your life before the other guy. But in the context of taking a life, you can never take a life even to save your own. If it's that guy's water, you cannot kill him and steal his water. Are you with me on that? Because your life comes first. That's not what we said. We said all you're allowed to do in the, in the original case that we talked about is do this. H- how violent is this? How violent is that? There's no violence. I, I'm not hurting this guy. I'm drinking my water. He's dying. That's not on me. In the in the scenario we just read, where the guy says, "Kill that guy or I'll kill you." If he kills that guy, then you're the then he's the one who hurt, hurt who put that man in harm's way and took his life. Actively, it's not saving a life; it's taking a life. These things are just before I got out of the car. The temperatures 116 degrees in Phoenix, and the cities in the world. They now have. Huge homeless population. Albeit, we know. I'm not saying it's important, but anyway, (laughs) the the homeless are living on the street, and it's 120 degrees in the cement, Mm -hmm. and they die. And they're taking emergency money to build cooling shelters, which sounds what a great thing to do. Then you have all these people, older people who are living uh, Medicare, uh, Medicare, whatever, Social Security, Social Security. And can't afford uh, air conditioning in their house or something. You know, shouldn't there they should be in line with be in a cooling center? And, yep. and, and, you know, question right. how to allocate resources to which life to save. You're right. And it's a it's a big question. People I, who pay for their debt. Right. You know, so look, I, I I feel like this is gonna this is gonna take us a little far a little too far out of the, the direct window that I, that we that I want to build up to. But you're right. The question is about an an allocation allocation of resources. But all of the scenarios that you're mentioning are are how do we allocate life-saving resources? What's clear in Jewish law is, there's no question that you cannot direct harm to someone to save your own life. That's the clear, if there's one thing right now, I mean, we're not done yet, but if there's one thing that right at this juncture that I want you to have a distinction of, it's when it comes to allocating life-saving resources, we can triage. We can prioritize. We can say, my life, I, I preserve my life before I preserve your life. That makes sense. If two boats are sinking, and we can only save one, probably save the one with the most people as opposed to the other one. In the hospitals, they do triage. You're allowed to use um, your seichel, your intelligence, to figure out who to save. And and you're allowed to prioritize that. But when it comes to taking a life, somebody says, oh, I'm going to put a bullet in your head so that I'm saved you cannot do that. That's where it goes over the line. To the point that it gets even, even, cre- even more extreme. Text number nine. Look at this. This will blow your mind. Maimonides writes the following. Text, uh, te- text nine, page 13. A group of people are told by a band of gangsters, give us one of you and we will kill him, and if you refuse, we will kill all of you. Imagine ten people traveling together violent gangsters come and say, hand us one, your choice, hand us one to be executed or else you're all goners. The law is let them all be killed, but they should not deliver even a single soul to enemy hands. Why? Because by you handing over one, you're complicit in their murder. Why? Because you took action. It wasn't passively. You're not just drinking water now. You took action to endanger that person's life. Ah, you're gonna tell me he was endangered anyway because they're all under danger? Yes, but you are singling him out or her, this one person out for danger. You cannot do that from the perspective of Jewish law. So now, what are we left with? We're left with this very um, nuanced, um, uh, this very nuanced understanding of the Jewish obligation or the Talmudic obligation to save a life. So number one, there's an obligation to save a life, whether protect life, whether it's yours or someone else's. If it's you versus them, your life comes first, but that's only when you're talking about saving a life, drinking your own water. You cannot take a life to save your own life, right? Now, there's no difference whether it's one versus many. Not even one soul can be sacrificed to save many because taking a life, every life is infinite. Even taking one life is problematic. Now, when we think about going, let's go back to the case study. Let's think about the case study. 1,400 teenage boys were rounded up by the SS. They were handed over to Jewish guards. And they were told, there's 1,400 today. Make sure there's 1,400 tomorrow. Tomorrow was the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. They wanted to create a spectacle by murdering, executing 1,400 young Jewish boys on the Holy Day of Rosh Hashanah, on the the Jewish New Year. And this father has the ability to bribe one of the Jewish guards and rescue his son. But he knows in doing so, he's putting that the guard is gonna grab another child who's not currently at risk and put them in that space to be executed. So here's the question that I'm gonna ask you. And this is the question that Rabbi Meisels, who got asked this question in Auschwitz, he was a rabbi there. This is the question that he was faced with by a father, real life situation. Here's the question. Is it more like the case of the water or more like the case? Is it like text three or text seven? Is it like the case of the water or is the case of killing someone to save your own life? You with me on that? Is it that I'm drinking my, am I saving a life? Or am I handing someone else over to be killed to save my own life, which is not okay? Text 10, if a king or a ruler, page 14, if a king or a ruler imposed a draft to royal service upon two prominent members of the Jewish community and another Jew is able to intervene on their behalf by using his special connections to government officials, is he permitted to do so knowing that the king might draft two other Jews instead? Imagine two people are drafted. Can you, can you spare them from the draft knowing that two others might be drafted? It's similar to the story, right? Rabbi, Rabbi Ben Lev ruled that if the king had already specified the individuals for this draft, then one may not intervene on their behalf and cause others to face this ordeal. However, if the king merely issued an edict that two Jewish members of the community must be taken into custody for the service, then it is permitted to ensure that individuals who are important to the community will not become victims of this draft. I'm not going to get into the question of favor and preference, and that's opening up a whole other can of worms. But here's the point. If the individuals were already selected according to Jewish law, you cannot save them because by saving them, you're putting others at risk. Text 12. And here's a caveat on this caveat. It seems that Rabbi Ben Lev's ruling only applies to others who wish to intervene and save those who have already been drafted by the king. However one of the individual draftees is permitted to do everything in his power to save himself, even though this may cause others to take his place, as we have the principle of your life comes first. And that is all the information we need to understand our case study. Here's a case of two people that are drafted. We said, so there's a draft. And the draft, as I guess, is dangerous, whatever the word was dangerous, you wanna make sure that these individuals are not in the draft. So can you make sure that they are not uh, that, they, that they are spared from the draft. If they were already selected, then you cannot. Why? Because by sparing them, you're putting two others in their place. If no one was selected, you can, you can a priori make sure, you can beforehand make sure that the ones that you don't want in the draft are not going to go into the draft. But in text 12, we learned something else. That if you were one of the ones that were selected, and you have the ability to save yourself, and bribe your way out of it, you're allowed to do so even, even though you know that by you sparing yourself from this draft, someone else is gonna be put in your place. But you're allowed to save yourself. Getting back to the story. This young, 1400 young boys, rounded up by the SS, chosen, rounded up by the SS. The father comes to the rabbi. The father says to the rabbi, I can save my son by bribing the guard. But by doing so, they're going to grab another kid and put him in. This kid is not in danger. Am I saving a life or taking a life? How does Jewish law look at it? Am I saving a life or taking a life? Saving a life is permitted. Taking a life is forbidden. And we know based on text 10 and text 12 that the following rule would apply. That no one can do that on behalf of someone else. You can't remove the people that were selected because others are going to go in but if it's you yourself you can save yourself by bribing yourself so here was the question to the rabbi as the rabbi understood the question is your son the same status as yourself or is it like saving someone else are you with me on the question this is ultimately the question the father who had the ability to to to, to ransom his son to save his son if the son were able to save himself and to run away, would he be able, would he be allowed to? Legally? Absolutely. Even though they're going to pull another kid, you can, you can run for it. The question is, can the father, can the father do it on behalf of the kid? Is, it, is the, the bond between father and son so close that it's considered as though they're the, the same entity and therefore... You're allowed to save this child because you're saving yourself. It's all the same the father, son, the, the connection is so tight. Or do we consider it like a secondary party and one is not allowed to do so? That was the question that the rabbi faced. The conclusion, what happened at the end, the rabbi told his father, after looking through his sources, going through all of his considerations, he told the father, I cannot tell you with 100% certainty that you are allowed to redeem, to, to save your son. And the father chose not to. Because he knew that by doing so, by bribing the officer, by bribing the guard, another kid who would live would be killed. And the rabbi said, I cannot tell you with certainty that it's kosher, that it's, that it's 100% okay. It's questionable. And so it was that this young boy was was murdered the next day. The father got up in synagogue the next day, and he said he was tears, and he said the sacrifice that I just did is greater than the sacrifice of Abraham when Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son. Why? Because Abraham was told to by God, whereas me, it's a question. But I still didn't feel that it was right to save my son and put some other child at risk. Not at risk, but to, and to take the life of another child. Um, this is a window into a real scenario, a real scenario, a real case, a real question of life and death that happened, real dilemma that happened uh, during the Holocaust and the, just the intense back and forth that, uh, that, that ensued in, in, the, in the, legal, the legal analysis. So in conclusion, I don't want to end on like, such a heavy note, even though I am ending on a heavy note because the story ends uh, on a heavy note. But in conclusion, for the, as far as takeaways today, um, so a few, a, few, a few takeaway points. Number one, um, Judaism views life as a series of obligations, not of rights society, human beings, et cetera, we, we, we view things in Judaism in terms of obligations, responsibilities, not necessarily rights, number one. Number two, there's, a, there's an obligation and a responsibility to preserve life. Whether that's within me, whether that's within you, whether I'm looking out for you, whether I'm looking out for myself, it's pretty much the same obligation, obligation to preserve life. Obviously, obviously, in certain situations, the obligations are going to bump, the responsibilities are going to collide. My life might come uh, in, 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 uh, in conflict with your life, in which case, I mean, hopefully not, right? But in, in which case, we have to parse that out and figure out which, whose life comes first and how we figure that out. In general, we, created, we, established a, we clarified the formula for that, and that is that um, when it comes to saving a life, In the act of saving, one can can prioritize oneself over someone else. Or in the case of medical triage, one can um, prioritize, based on various criteria that make sense, logical criteria, uh, some lives over other lives in the act of saving. But when it comes to the act of taking a life, actively taking a life, that would be highly problematic in Jewish law. Some of you may be familiar with the trolley dilemma. The tra- it's, a, it's a famous philosophical quandary where imagine that you're, in a tra- you're the conductor of a train and you realize the brakes have failed and it's speeding down the track and there's, and there's um, five people, workers, that are completely oblivious to the train that are at the end of the track and it, there's, n- there's no time for them to get out of the way or to warn them and there's no brakes and it's gonna, definitely going to take the, the life of the five. But you have one option you can turn the wheel there's a, two tracks I mean, you're on one track but you can turn off and there's one person on that track so do you turn the wheel and take that person's life most people say absolutely turn the wheel one versus five but today we've seen that in jewish law you cannot take an action to take a life you didn't put these five at risk like the desert case They're at risk because the brakes failed, the speed of the train, that's not on you, it's an accident. But you intentionally turning the wheel is taking a life to save other lives. We cannot take a life intentionally to save other lives, even if it's one versus many. So that's again a conclusion of what we saw today. Um, Because again, life is infinitely valuable. We don't, it's not a numbers game. So when it comes to saving life, that's one thing. But taking a life, Taking life we don't do. I once saw a lecture from a professor at Harvard. He was speaking about this. He asked this class, you, see, you, you could see this, it's on YouTube. He asked his class, um, Sandler, I think is his name. He says, um, you know, what do you think? Do you, do you change tracks? Do you turn the wheel? Everyone's like, yes. He's like, all right, let me ask you another question. Imagine you're on a bridge and you're watching, you're watching this, a runaway train, and there's five guys at the end of the track and there's no way, like you see these guys are goners. Um and and, and you're up on, on top of a bridge, a low bridge, but overlooking the scenario. And 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 let's say there's no conductor and there's straight up a runaway train, but there's a guy next to you. Do you push that guy onto the tracks to stop the train? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like so then why like what's the difference between pushing a guy into the tracks to save the five or turning the wheel? Everyone's like, well, you pushed the guy. Okay, what if, I didn't have to push the guy. What if there's a wheel on the bridge? Turn the wheel on the bridge, the guy falls down onto the tracks. It's interesting the way our minds work. (laughs) Judaism gives us a framework of understanding this. It's either a danger that exists on its own or something that I'm creating. We cannot create mortal danger for someone else to take someone's life, even allegedly to save someone else's life. Can't do that. And so that's why we don't turn the wheel, we don't push the guy. And in this case, even in this tremendously, tremendously uh, um, terrible scenario, we don't even take out this child. At least we're not sure if we should take out the child if that's going to put someone else's life at risk. All right, thank you for joining me for Lesson One of Talmudic Ethics. Um, it's great to have you all here to study. Um, not all the classes are this heavy. <laughs> not all the classes. Are this. Lesson One happened to be very heavy. Life and death. Next week, although it's also a heavy topic, end of life issues. Euthanasia, uh, DNR, et cetera. uh, what, What are the Jewish thoughts regarding end of life issues? Join me next week, same bad time, same bad channel, as we explore those together. Euthanasia, morphine, assisted suicide. All right.